man. Awesome. Thank you all so much for, uh, for, yeah, give it up. I'm clapping the mic so you can follow along. Um, and what we're going to do now is we're just going to take a few minutes to, to jump into the Bible and continue our series in Ezra. And so we are at, uh, yeah, oh man, I was freaking out because I didn't put, set my watch back and I was like, dude, we're so late, but we're not. All right. Uh, okay, so we're, we're going to continue our time in Ezra. We've been here for about three to four weeks now. Actually, I take that back. This is our fourth week. Uh, and so we have really seen an incredible story getting teased out from Ezra. And it is one of my favorite stories in the whole of the Bible. It is a story of, of a uh, an exiled lost people being restored by a redeemer God into the restored purpose he has for them, right? They, they're, in the history of the Israelites, there's been a lot of ups and downs. And the exile is one of the biggest downs that's happened. The exile was this period where through disobedience, God had like chucked these people and been like, hey, yo, you're going to spend some time in another place. Uh, don't worry. In that time, you're going to feel the weight of discipline, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to rescue you. And I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to restore the purpose that I've always given you, which is to know me uh, to worship me, and through worshiping me, to bless the world. And we're seeing that happen from the very beginning of Ezra, right? It, it says that, that the Lord stirs King Cyrus, and he, he calls on this captive people and says, hey, for all those that are willing and all those that are ready, go home and build a house for your God. And it's like, what? That's super crazy. But the Lord was moving, and they continue on. They, they, they say, okay, they, they get together, they go out, and they, they start sacrificing and doing the, the acts of worship that they were called to do in those days. And, and we see all this happening in this movement, this excitement, that, that the, the promises that God had promised um, the Israelite people, specifically in Jeremiah 29, that these promises were now going to be fulfilled and were being fulfilled now in this moment uh, that, that's recorded in the book of Ezra. And so where we left off, the, the, the people of God headed out from Babylon. They had started to worship God. They, are, uh, they finished the, the altar, and they started sacrificing and participating in worship again. And they had laid the foundation um, of the temple, the house of God that they were going to, to, to rebuild, that they were going to restore. And, and here's the thing. When we start up chapter 4, a lot of stuff happens. We're going to work in the next... 12 minutes, I'll say, through roughly uh, three chapters of the Bible. So, uh, so we're just going to read this whole time. Just kidding. Uh, but once we get into chapter 4, a lot happens. And it's a story that you got to pay attention to uh, in, its, in its themes and in its story arc. Not always necessarily always in the details, but you really have to understand what's happening in the story arc in order to get what's happening. Okay, now, before we go there, I, I am... I am wanting us to get to a point here today, and, and the point that I would tell you that I hope you take home uh, is this idea, that um, God blesses us and others, is that right? God works to bless us and bless others as we truly live in community. What does truly live mean and why is it underlined like that? We'll get to that in a second. Uh, and how we're going to really break this down and break this text down, right, three chapters, Ezra 4, 5, and 6, is we're going to work through three ideas. We're going to work through, or two ideas, living in community and then fighting in community. Living in community and then fighting in community. Living in community, fighting community. You'll see what we're going, uh, where we're going with that in a second here. 
And so as we jump in, we're thinking about Ezra 4, 5, and 6, living in community and fighting in community. Again, we got to get a grasp of what's happening in the story. Without knowing what's happening in the story, nothing I'm about to say is going to make sense to you. And so I provided for you a nerdy timeline, okay? A nerdy timeline. A timeline of Ezra 4 through 6. And really, it, it, the, the main timeline of these three chapters is based around decisions that three specific kings have and, and how those decisions impact the people of God. Obviously, in Ezra 1 through 4, we had that initial declaration of King Cyrus that says, hey, go and build the temple of God. And then shortly after that, in Ezra 4, where we begin today, there arises a complaint from the people around the Israelites there in Jerusalem. These complaints come up as, as a new king is taken over, a king named Artaxerxes. Everybody say Artaxerxes. Hey, I'm pretty good. I ain't gonna lie. I thought y'all gonna like really fail that one, but because I did, I, I had to listen to an audio Bible for that bad boy. I ain't gonna lie to y'all. Uh, and so in 4 6 through 16, uh, a complaint arises, and, and the governors from the kingdom of Persia write to Artaxerxes, and they're like, hey, if they re rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem is always a place where rebellion happens. You ain't never gonna have peace. So, of course, Artaxerxes in chapter 4 responds, and he's like, tell everybody to stop building. So they stop building. But then shortly after that, the, the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, these are books in the Bible. They, you can read what those prophecies have said and what they meant. Uh, those prophecies spur on a new building campaign in Ezra chapter 5. And so spurred on by that prophecy in Ezra chapter 5, the people start building again. Except for they never got word from no king that they could start building again. But by that time, another new king had come to power, King Darius. And King Darius uh, had a, a likewise governors there. And those governors came up and were like, hey, who told you you could be doing this? Where does this work coming from? Tell me your names. Tell me what you're doing. And we're going to write something to King Darius. They do. And in Ezra 5, 6 through 17, that's where we get a letter to King Darius. And then finally in 6, 6 through 15, we get King Darius' decision, which is he responds and says, tell them to go ahead and go. Build away. Build away. I'm an honor what King Cyrus said in chapter 1, I'm going to honor here years later in chapter 6. And finally, as we get to the end of chapter 6, we have the temple dedication and ultimate completion where people start to sing and rejoice. And it's an incredible time. So this is what's happening in Ezra 4 through 6. There's a timeline of the events. And if we we're going to judge by this timeline, one of the things that we would say is like, yo, this must mean that the story is about like how these kings impact the world. Because for a lot of the Bible, that seems to be kind of what happens, right? Like kings, charismatic figures, influential people step to the plate, and they start to make a huge impact. But this is just 4 through 6. If we want to understand what God is trying to say to us in 4 through 6, we have to understand how 4 through 6 fits into the bigger picture of Ezra as a whole. Because if you were to say, well, that must mean the, the idea that Ezra's trying to get to us is that, is that king's decisions impact the, the world, you'd You'd have a point regarding Ezra 4 through 6, but I think you'd be wrong about what Ezra as a whole says. Because what, what Ezra, the book of Ezra, is trying to communicate to us, even in this story, is actually not that kings have power, but, but that God's people have power. That God's people have influence. That God does not just work through kings and influential people. In fact, the most powerful work that God does is through people united in community. What do you mean? Well, let me show you a little bit of what, what the rest of Ezra is doing. Not just the kings, but the rest of Ezra. Uh, in, in Ezra, the idea of living in community is super important. The idea of being a part of a community and, and dedicating yourself to it is wildly important. And he shows it through this sequence of events of how the community itself serves and loves and does things. So right from, 
from when we jump in in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, it says that everyone who, whose, whose spirit was roused by God started to prepare to leave. And then in Ezra 2, we have this list of all these people that actually went. And then when we get to the end of chapter 2, they, and so if we're going to put that in the context of, of some language to help us remember, right? Chapter 1, they start preparing together. Chapter 2, they actually set out and go on an adventure together. By the end of chapter 2, they're giving together. And they're saying, hey, let's give, let's raise our funds so that we can start to rebuild the temple. We get to chapter 3, we start seeing them build together. They, they build the altar, and then they start laying the foundation to the temple. And then in chapter 5, like we mentioned, they start building the temple again. They build together. In Ezra 3 and, and 3.3 and 3.11, we see them worship together. They declare the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. He's worthy. They build a, an, an altar and start worshiping God regardless of what the other people in the area you think. And then when we get to, to Ezra 3 later on, we see that they rejoice together and they sing and say, man, I can't believe the temple foundation is finished. But, but shortly after that, they mourn together because another group says, man, but it's never going to be what it was. And some of us remember what that looked like from when we were children. So they, they mourn. And then through this process, we also finally come to this point where they start to fight together. Not fight each other, fight together. What do we mean? In, in the sequence of what's happening, how these, this back and forth between kings is going on, it's not going on in a story where the story is about the kings, but rather it's going on in a story that's about the people and about us, about what it looks like for God to move through us. Because as, as all this back and forth between kings happens, there's a very special and important part here that we have to look at when it comes to the idea of community fighting. You see, in 5, 11 through 17, again, we said spurred on through Haggai and Zechariah, the people of God start building regardless. They're like, hey, you told us no. And then kind of, kind of with flashes of, of Acts and John and, and Peter, there's this sense of like, hey, yo, whether you say to stop or not, we got to obey God. We finna build this house. We mentioned in the timeline. Can you go back to the timeline real quick? We mentioned through the timeline that here... Uh, there's a letter to King Darius right in that section that says, hey, who told y'all to do this? There's a powerful stretch of scripture. Where'd my Bible go? Um, there's a powerful stretch of scripture here that gives you insight to how they saw their fight. That they did not see it. As a fight against kings, they did not see it as a fight of their leaders versus other leaders, but rather, they saw it as a people fighting together with their God. In chapter 5, uh, verse 6, actually verse 3, uh, upon starting to rebuild without permission, it says this, At the time of Tatnai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, uh, Shethar Bazanai uh, and their colleagues came to the Jews and asked, Who gave you... Uh, the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure. They also asked them, what are the names of the workers who are constructing this building? But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop them until a report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instructions about this matter. This is what it looked like for, for King Darius' governors to come be like, hey, what's going on here? What's happening here? And their response to this is actually really powerful. Go down to verse... Um, Go down to verse 11. It says, this is the reply they gave us. We are the servants of the God of the heavens and earth. And we are building the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. 
But since our ancestors angered the God of the heavens, he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, the first year of King Cyrus of Babylon, he issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He also took from the temple in Babylon the gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to the temple in Babylon. He released them from the temple in Babylon to a man named Sheshbazar, the governor of the appointed the governor by the appointment of King Cyrus. Cyrus told him, take these articles, put them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. Then this same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of God's house in Jerusalem. It has been under construction from that time until now, but it has not been completed. So, if it pleases the king, let a search of the royal archives in Babylon be conducted to see if it is true that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. Who gave you the order? What are the names of the workers who are constructing this building? We are the servants of the Most High God. We are the servants of the God of the heavens and the earth. And then at the very end, let the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. Friend, here's the wild thing about this. The invitation of this whole book in some ways, is the idea of living in radical and true community. They fought together, they prepared together, they, they built together, they, they, they strived together. They, it was natural that as opposition came, they would fight together. It was never gonna be a case of whether who the person stepping up to the plate to fight was gonna be, because the whole journey was built on how they were going together, how they had been called together, how they were now under press together, and how they would respond and fight back together. That's the whole idea. That's what's happening here. The invitation is to be in radical and true living in community. Let me be honest with you. The reason this is powerful to me is because I don't necessarily always think like this. I don't always think like this. When someone says, who's the leader, right? Let me, let me just give you an example. If someone even in our church right now is like, yo, who's the leader here? I think most of y'all would look at me and be like, that guy, right? And how, what did they do? They were like, yo, we're the servants of the God of the heavens and the earth. What a response. It's this wild thing where it's like, man, if I come under pressure, it'd be like my first response. If I, if I come under temptation, it would be like my first response being like, man, how can we get me out of this? Instead of God, how can I get out of this? What a wildly different response to situations. When we see someone out and they're struggling to say, man, God, how can we impact that person's life? Not how can I change that person's life? Right? How, how can we make an impact in the community? How can, how can we help me overcome the, the sin struggles that I have? It is starting to exchange the ideas of me and God walk together to, to God walks with us together. That, what would it look like in your life if all of a sudden your battles weren't yours? 
I think that's the, that's the question at the end of the day with a text like this. What would it look like if you stepped into the ring with your greatest sin struggles, with your greatest, greatest like moments of, of, of like lacking hope, right, lacking joy, whatever the case is for you, only you know where you're at. And instead of coming to the plate and saying, God, like, how do I get through this? God, get me through it. You came in knowing, God, you've given me a community of people to fight alongside of me. And there's going to be moments where I'm trying to do the right thing and pressure comes and, and, and there's some pushback on what I'm doing. There's going to be moments where I'm trying to follow your will and there's pushbacks on what I'm doing, but you've surrounded me with the people and we are the servants of the heavens, the servants of the God of the heavens and the earth, and he's doing a thing and we're following him. So God, work through us. Work through us and bring life to me through us. What a wild way to live your life. What a wild way to live your life, friend. Right? This is what it actually looks like for Ezra, for the people of God in Ezra. They don't, they don't even have a, a me, really, a, an I or a leader to even point to. I want you to think about something. The book of Ezra is called Ezra, and we ain't even said this man's name yet. This man's name is coming in chapter 7. We just got through with chapter 6. We're halfway through the book, and the word Ezra hasn't come up yet. You know why? Because the book isn't about a person. The book is about a people. Just like the book of the Bible, when, when Jesus enters in the story, he doesn't enter so that he could save a person. He enters so that he could save a people. It's why when we do communion, we say, don't take it by yourself. Take it with someone else because God may have saved you individually, but he saved you into a people. Friend, you are not meant to walk your life, get through your struggles, face the most difficult things by yourself because God never meant for it to be you and him against the world. He always meant for it to be him and his people for the world. That was always going to be the major difference. Every other god in the ancient world seemed to, to attach and, and conquer and attach and, and betray. All the while, this god said, come, my people, my people will worship me. My people will, will engage with me, and they will be a blessing to the world in doing that, through doing that. Friends, our calling is not to just survive in an individualistic relationship with God where we go and say, I need my quiet time, and I need my, my time by myself, and, and God, it's me and you, and we're going to go against the world, and, and I'm going to do it, and we're going to be okay, and I'm going to do me, and everything's going to be fine. No, the, the, the life of the Christian and the life of the follower of Jesus is about plugging into a people and saying, God, what do you have for us? What do you have for us? How can I play a role in us? And how can these people play a role in me? Again, friend, I'm not saying it's only about serving. I am saying that if, if we only know what it means to follow Jesus as an individual, we'll never know what it means to actually experience the work of Jesus because what he does, he does in the context of community. That's where he works. Who are the names of the people? What are y'all doing? We're the servants of the Most High. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul says, hey, I'm giving y'all pastors and shepherds and uh, pastors and teachers and, and apostles and, uh, and, oh, dang it, okay. So the five of them, y'all know the five of them, just go with me, all right? Um, right, he gives us those five, and then Paul says, and these individuals are meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Think about what he says. I wish I had it on the board, I'm sorry, but I don't. Think about what he says, though. I gave you these people so that they could do all the work for you. No, I gave you these people so that they could equip you for the work of ministry. Right? Living in radical community, living in true community, right? That's what starts to see the Lord do this wild type of work. And that's what we see in Ezra. For my only question to you is, what's stopping you from that? What's stopping you from that type of experience? What's stopping you from those moments to say, hey, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to help me? Right? My, my, I'm under pressure. I'm under temptation. How can we serve me? 
even that question sounds awkward until it's put in the context that that's where God works. I want to lovingly tell you something. Lovingly. If you're anything like me, God saved me in an individual experience with him. I was in a church. The church was empty. I put on a song, got on my knees. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I prayed, snot bubble cry for 40 minutes. Your boy was changed. That's how it went. If the rest of my life is going back to say, hey, I hope I can get in, into a quiet time with you to snot bubble cry so you could fix all my issues, I will have been missing the whole point of what it meant to follow him and what he did in my life and where he's taking me. Because that moment wasn't meant to say, hey, I see you. He does see me. But he's saying, I'm bringing you into a family of people that are marked by who I am. And what I do, they'll be your home. They'll be where you see me, where you experience me. True community, friends. True community. I know some of us are like, man, I'm, I like my individuality. I'm not saying you ain't an individual. My name is Guerrero and I'm Mexican and I like it. You could be an individual. You be you. Enjoy your music. Enjoy your own taste of food, X, Y, and Z. What I'm saying is that the burdens of life, something that has been a theme this whole Sunday, the burdens of your life are not meant to be carried by you alone. And the place where you shed them is not always going to be in a prayer closet on your own. In fact, it seems to me like the Bible, the New Testament specifically, has this beautiful vision of you sharing your burdens, not with a, a closet in the dark, but rather with a community of people in light. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so how can we grow in this? I keep going, but I'm, I'm going to finish up. How can we grow in this idea of, of growing in community? The first thing, friend, is I want to encourage you to define the we. Define the we. Before you can live in the we of community, you have to define the we. The reason some of us don't know how to say we can help me, who am I going to turn to? Because you don't have no one that you've told, that you don't even have an idea of who you would turn to. You ain't built a community. You have to define the we. Define who is it that I'm going to turn to? Who is it that I think has my back? Who is it that I'm going to be vulnerable with? Define the we. Before you can start living in the we, you got to define the we. Define who your community is going to be and who you're going to follow Jesus with. So define the we. Then after that, I want to encourage you to start using we language instead of our language. I already kind of started that a little bit, right, like, like in, in what I'm trying to communicate to you. How can we make an impact? And the thing is, for a lot of us, we say I, and it intimidates the mess out of us, right? You have visions for your life. You have visions for what your life is going to be, how it's going to change, visions for maybe how you want to make an impact in the world. And then you start there, and you start going, man, how am I going to do this? And it's like, fam, you are not going to do it, all right? Like, I am not going to do much without you, all of you. We are going to do something together. When I think about how I'm going to confront the sin struggles in my life, life, if it's only I that's working on them, then I'm missing a whole group of people that God has given me in order to help support and empower me through the spirit of God at work in us to overcome those sin struggles, right? Like it, that, that's what it looks like, friend. Start using we language instead of I language. And then the last one I want to encourage you with is bond by both being and doing. Bond by both being and doing. What do I mean by that? Bond by being. Be together. Hang out. If everything in your life is about like what you're doing, you probably are missing out on some beautiful things with the people that are right in front of you. Define your community and be with them, bad boys and bad girls. Be, be with them, enjoy them, serve them, be served by them, love them. And then when you get the chance, go do some things. Because if all you're doing is doing and never being, you'll have a, a, a lot of reach but not a lot of depth. But if all you're doing is being and never doing, right, you might have a lot of depth, but not a lot of reach. 
And, and this life is about both. All right, I took way more than 12 minutes, so let's, let's, go, ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and cut out and then uh, finish up for the day. And so, Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you that we're invited into this truth of what it means to live in community, uh, not brought about by just an exchange of one community for the other. We're not here to say, hey, these are the people that I like, but rather these are the people that, that are mine. Not because of who we choose, but because of who you choose, but because of what you've done, because of how you sacrifice, because of how you love. Father, let us see the beauty of what it is to be a spiritual family, not because we all have the same things in common, but because we have all things in common in you. That you have saved the people that are in front of us, that you have brought us together by sending your son into the story and narrative of the world, by taking the sin of the world onto yourself so that we could now walk in freedom, so that we could be accepted in you and be made a part of your family. That's what we sit in right now. And so, Father, help us go. Help us be together. Help us live in true community, joined together as a people under you, serving you, following you together. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.